Hey there, welcome to this week's episode of The Honors Pod, a podcast about all the happenings in Trinity's Honors Program. Take it away, hosts. Hey everybody, and welcome to another episode of The Honors Pod. Here at Trinity, we are celebrating our self-proclaimed research month, and in our honors class this semester, we are working with neighborhood economics and a few other community developers to look into what equitable housing looks like and how we as students can be involved in that. So today we have Sarah Hope Marshall with us who is intimately involved in this research. She's currently pursuing a master's degree that is looking at how technology and housing can be brought together um, to make communities more accessible to residents. So Sarah, I would like to invite you to introduce yourself a little bit, but knowing your background, I'd ask that you can tell us a little bit specifically about your time with uh, the CDFI industry and how that brought you to where we are today. Yeah, thanks for having me. It's great to be here. My name is Sarah Hope Marshall. I'm currently a community development consultant and speaker. I worked in the CDFI industry for a number of years, and at the beginning of the pandemic, I paused a bit to finish up some graduate work that I was doing around issues exploring how technology has made us more mobile as a society and how that affects our relationship with place. More specifically, I spent about seven years working in the technology space around issues related to the digital divide, access to computer hardware and broadband before transitioning to the credit union industry, where I last served as CEO of a CDFI credit union that served um, low-income communities on the north side of Chicago, um, something that I've had an interest in for quite a long time, and I'm really excited to be here and talk with you a little bit more about my work. Thank you so much, Sarah. And I think now uh, Sharon has a question for you regarding how exactly you're using technology in this space. So Sharon? Would you be able to talk about your role with technology in relation to housing? And also if you faced any resistance from people who have either done the job longer than you or do not use technology? That's a great question. I actually started looking at the issue a few years ago. Um, You're asking specifically about how technology relates to housing. And one of the things that I identified, particularly in urban areas, is that building developers are thinking very differently about what housing stock looks like and the relationship that people have to where they live has changed and this is because of a number of factors things like how social media has made us more connected during the pandemic we've all been connected remotely and virtually Um, so it was interesting to build on on some of the research over the past year as we've all made really quick pivots into a different sort of virtual world. But what really caught my attention was that some of the housing and particularly expensive um, luxury housing that was designed for, it seemed younger professionals was designed to be somewhat transitory. For example, transit oriented high rises near a train line uh, where individuals who live there did not have to prioritize cars. They were in very small spaces and so the the building design was based around amenities in the neighborhood and not the actual living space itself. Interestingly, some of those buildings I was initially looking at, I read an article recently saying that they were um, almost 20% unoccupied during the pandemic. So as the pandemic hit and they were confined to these very small spaces, a lot of people ended up moving out. And so the question that I'm at 
sort of an intermediary stage of exploring is how these tools that we have that we didn't really have a ton of access to 20 or 30 years ago as a society. Um, for example, the internet or the World Wide Web really became a household phenomena in the late 1990s. Um, so it's still a very recent phenomena, but it's changed the way that we think about our neighbors, um, our living situation, where we're going to be, how long we're going to be there, and what we need out of the place. And so that I think has an impact on how we do affordable housing, how we work to stall gentrification or, or slow it, how we improve living conditions in neighborhoods that um, political leaders are looking to revitalize. I, I think that we need to take the way that we live now into account um, in those types of program and policy design. So I don't have any answers yet, but I'm at the very beginning stages of um, exploring that. So I know you're still at the beginning, um, as you mentioned, but have you experienced any resistance yet um, in involving technology in this work? I don't think I've experienced a lot of resistance so much as it's something that everybody knows intuitively, but nobody's really articulated. So I haven't found a lot of research that has sat down and defined how we are living differently in our neighborhood than we were 25 or 30 years ago. Um, so people generally initially react with curiosity, and depending on the type of work they're involved in. I think um, an elevated curiosity might be an appropriate way to describe it based on how much that disrupts the work that they are currently doing. Uh, I think it's common for people to be uncomfortable with an idea that changes the parameters of the work or the way that they do work themselves. Um, so it's mostly intrigue and, and more of a, an idea or sense that this isn't really a conversation that's being broadly had yet. Thank you. Uh, that definitely guides kind of our idea of what technology looks like in this space. And we're talking a lot about small scale here with the South Shore community and other Chicago neighborhoods. But at our last conversation, you also talked about larger scale and what you're looking at at the federal level. So Natalie actually is going to jump in now with a question about what that looks like for you. Yeah. So like Jacob said, kind of taking um, a broader look at this, how or can you talk about the involvement of technology or the lack thereof within federal policy? Because um, you've mentioned how policy was written a long time ago and doesn't really incorporate technology to the degree that it's actually being used in everyday life. To address your question, people are definitely thinking in, about technology, but in different ways than specifically connected to the neighborhood. Uh, there's There are federal initiatives to expand access to technology. The state of Illinois specifically is working to improve access to computer hardware and broadband because so many people were left behind or struggling during the pandemic. It really highlighted the importance of being able to access online spaces and virtual spaces. Uh, and so that's not necessarily to suggest that people don't know how to use technology or access technology so much as how to combine it with funding for community development programs. So there are policies in place to encourage lending and development in communities that are that have been historically underrepresented, underfunded, uh, underinvested in. 
and most often minority communities. And those policies were largely written in the 1970s, 1980s, and 1990s. Uh, And as with many policies that are older, uh, there's probably a number of federal policies that need to be updated. But in order to do that, it's the process of thinking critically about what types of solutions there that may be reasonable to propose that would actually uh, take into account um, some of the changes in our societal structures. Thank you, Sarah. And I know that this is a major course of study in your master's degree that you're working on right now. And I'm going to turn it over to Kendall um, to kind of explore that a little bit more. Yeah. So as um, Jacob said, um, we know that you are studying at the University of Chicago currently, and you are studying your own handmade degree. Um, I was just wondering if you could go into more detail as to what that degree is and how you plan to intersect community development and technology by using that degree. That's a great question. I'm in the Master's of Liberal Arts program at the University of Chicago, so it's an interdisciplinary degree. There's a number of courses in the program that students can select from, but I decided to take all of my electives in various departments, and I actually ended up leading, leaning fairly heavily into sociology study. Um, and my research actually started when I was still running the CDFI credit union that I referenced before. And I started looking at the neighborhood and the residents very closely because the credit union I was working for had been founded in 1974 um, during a period of heavy activism and maybe even uniquely in the sense that the activism and a number of the organizations involved in the community um, were a very interracial coalition, and they were pretty successful um, for the 1970s in terms of what they were uh, trying to accomplish. And so the credit union I was operating had been born out of that era era of community organizing, um, particularly for economic justice. But as some of the political leadership changed in the community and the city itself changed and people's priority changed, there started to be a lot of displacement in the community. And so I started examining the ways that people um, that I interacted with regularly were being displaced, which then led me to research a, a community organizing project that happened in the early 1990s, the first ever tenant buyout of a hot affordable building happened in that particular community. And that led me to the question of how organizing has changed um, and whether it has kept up with the changes in the way that we live. Uh, I think that one of the things that I hope comes out of the research is that is that I don't just write a thesis that sits on a shelf somewhere that only a few academics read, but that it's a sort of a um, living document that people can um contribute ideas to and that can become the basis for some type of solution in terms of thinking about um, place and funding and and what we do with the way that we live now. Yeah, so I want to build on um, what you just ended with talking about hoping that your thesis doesn't just end up on a shelf. Is there any technology or any methods that are looking most promising to you right now and what you think will be most effective? I don't think I'm at that stage yet where I feel like I have a really clear solution in terms of what to do about that. Um, in some ways, I wonder if if policy that encourages people to remain in a community and contribute to a community might be something that would shape that 
outcome differently. Um, but it could also be things as simple as um, requiring all affordable housing buildings over a certain size to have broadband access. It could be um, more of something that's already happening pretty widely on a federal level, but contributing to business ownership, but also coupling that with that with ways to make sure businesses have um, a good online space and a good online strategy, as we've all seen in the, in the past year, how many uh, businesses have struggled when they were limited to only physical space. Um, some of it could include repurposing vacant buildings, vacant commercial strips um, in neighborhoods that need to be revitalized. So um, I think there's a lot of possible directions that it can go. Um, as far as a conclusion yet, I'm not quite sure. That's part of the academic process. Yeah, definitely. And that's actually something that I've heard you say a lot, both in this conversation and in the previous conversations that we have, is just that this is an academic process and we are in the beginning stages. Um, and that's something that for me as a student has been very encouraging. Um, when we started this class this semester, I definitely felt a little nervous and at a disadvantage um, in terms of research because I didn't really know what I can contribute. Um, but I've appreciated talking to you and other people that are looking for solutions um, encouraging us and noting that we are here to gather information and to just play with any idea we can think of. Um, and so I'm going to turn it over to Luke, um, who wants to touch on what exactly that looks like for students and how we can be actively involved in this research. Yeah, so my question is kind of practically speaking, how can we as college students or people of our age bracket uh, really truly help promote change um, in this area, in your opinion? I think... Potentially one of the biggest things is the idea, and I think this goes a little bit back to Jacob's last point, the idea that when you approach a, a, a community problem or an economic problem, um, understanding that you or your demographic won't ever have the entire solution. Um, there's been a number of studies that have pointed to the effectiveness of diverse organizations. Uh, generally, they outperform more homogenous organizations by a wide margin. Um, but that generally holds true when there's a true commitment to diversity rather than a, a simple surface level um, practice of, of hiring people who are felt to be representative of, of diverse communities, but really bringing everybody to the table and having everybody contribute their solutions um, is critical because there are more perspectives in the room um, and there's more places to challenge blind spots. When you're in a room or in a demographic of people who are only similar to you, um, what happens is that the conversation unintentionally becomes somewhat myopic because the only perspective that's being shared or the only sort of critical thinking only comes from one and that's not to say there's not diversity of thought or diversity of experience, but um, sort of one set of the population. Um, so in any form of leadership, listening and um, being willing to be humble and to learn and to step back and let somebody else's ideas come to the top um, and giving people space to develop their ideas and support along the way um, is generally most effective in terms of of thinking about how to approach some of these issues. I think um, to your question in terms of being a college student, 
Um, I think one of the the really great things about age diversity in uh, any sort of collaborative environment is uh, people based on their age also come to the table with different perspectives. So by the time people are mid-career, they become a little bit more risk adverse and um, cautious because they've seen things go wrong. And that's experience. And that experience is really important. But um, for people who are younger and still in college and haven't had as many sort of failures in the in their past already, um, challenging ideas is really important. Um, and challenging the status quo. Um, some problems don't get solved just because people don't want to challenge the status quo. Uh, they want to sort of keep things where they are because it is easier to do that sometimes. But I think the place that your group really fits in is um, in thinking through and understanding that how you grew up with technology being so integrated into every aspect of your life from a young age that you do think about the world differently than people who are mid-career or older career. And you do have things that can be contributed that uh, I think sometimes as people who've gotten into their career sometimes miss just because we grew up in, in a different sort of um, environment in terms of what society was like. Yeah, thank you. That's honestly uh, something that I hadn't really considered, the age diversity and what that means as far as uh, different approaches to risk. Um, I do want to take this question one step further, and I think you touched on it a little bit, but as college students at a predominantly white institution, what difficulties do you think that brings to the table and and or what uh, role specifically do you think we can bring? That's a, a great question, and that's probably several podcasts in itself. Um, I think the, the thing, um, which is probably, I'm probably not the first person to have said it, um, especially over the past year, but there's definitely a level of, definitely a level of privilege at predominantly white organizations and spaces. Um, and I think the thing to think about emphasizing is um, working to understand systems. And I think when I came to your class, I spoke a little bit about sometimes you don't know you're in a system because it's working. Um, so when people who are white approach spaces such as education or with law enforcement or with healthcare or with the job market, um, the system generally tends to be working. That doesn't mean people don't have individual struggles or failures, but there's not a tremendous amount of unnecessary barriers. And so it's easy to assume based on our own experience that that's how everybody experiences a system or a place. And that's not actually the case for um, many people in our country. There's a lot of barriers and a lot of places that things don't work um, in terms of disparity, but then that happens at every place along the spectrum. Um, and so because things work so well, I think as white people, we don't always process that there is sort of a an invisible system that's overarching in terms of the way policies been created in terms of the, the way that social norms and relationships have been created that um, it, it's not an easy task to tackle, but um, it's important to, to consider what that means um, really in any form of leadership and I think in any form of leadership in this country 
Um, some t- some statistics say that by 2030, the United States will be majority minority. So these issues um, in terms of career, in terms of workplace, in terms of social issues, really in terms of anything you encounter um, will become more and more critical to think through. And I think society will continue to challenge us to think through these types of issues. Yeah, definitely. Well, thank you so much, Sarah. You have definitely brought a lot of things to consider and think through. Um, Thank you for working with us on this project. Uh, We're excited to continue working with you and other solution makers to figure out what the best idea for South Shore is, and we're very excited to be part of that with you. Absolutely. Thanks for having me. Thanks for listening to this week's episode of The Honors Pod. A special thanks to alumni Matt Myrick for providing the music you're hearing now. With new episodes every Monday, we hope you'll tune in again next week. See you then.